Welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Rory, and we are going to talk about a very depressing topic. It's good that you laugh because, you know, you're going to need it. We've just been talking about him for so long, and I'm I'm, 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 I'm all at sand now. I'm uh, having to laugh to keep myself sane. Ah, yeah. That's how how bleak he is. Now, uh, Schopenhauer is a very depressing person to read. I definitely don't recommend it if you're depressed. Mm. Um, If you're depressed and you read Schopenhauer, basically you're going to have someone who is going to give you the the message other than the one you want to hear. Uh, But uh, that doesn't mean that we should never read him. I think that it is very important to read figures who tell us bad things about life. Mm. Because sometimes bad things about life are true things about life. Sure, I do think some of his solutions are well, well, well needed lessons as yeah. well. Now, when we're talking about this, we need to bear in mind that Schopenhauer is one of those thinkers who constantly hold up a mirror in front of us and himself and tries to <clears> say <throat> that this is what life is like mm. and this is what we are like as a human species. Look at it, look in front of you, look in the mirror. Don't try to look away. And he says that if you really look into it, you will see that life is basically suffering. I think that before we talk about his essay on the sufferings of the world, we should talk a bit about who Schopenhauer was, uh, say some anecdotes about him. Which we also did uh, on our previous uh, collaboration on yes. Nietzsche's birth of tragedy. Yeah, yeah. But it's important to remind uh, our viewers of Schopenhauer's position within the philosophical tradition. Yeah. Now, the best way to think of it is this: traditional ph- uh, philosophers have thought that there is such a thing as reason, which is an intellectual power by which we can know the world as it is, independently of how we view it, which, uh, which has to do with objectivity. Yeah. It involves the idea that we can actually know how things are, and things would be the same way even if we didn't look up upon them, if we didn't perceive them. Yeah. So for instance, someone like Plato and Aristotle would say that when we are looking at the world, we are f- finding out how the world is really like, and it would be the case even if there was no conscious being contemplating yes. how that would be. That is a form of realism mm. that we are using reason to understand how the world really is like, how reality is like. Um, This has been the dominant uh, tradition in philosophy. But there are other thinkers, like uh, Hume, for instance, and Kant, who completely and radically changed this. Mm. And now we live under the Humean and Kantian paradigm. And uh, it's a paradigm that we definitely must become acquainted with if we want to understand the philosophical underpinnings of contemporary society. Western societies. So what they bring along is a kind of skepticism. Hume is a bit more skeptical, but also a skepticism towards traditional metaphysics. 
both of them deny this claim. Yeah. The claim that, for instance, Plato and Aristotle and the the overwhelming majority of philosophers across time have held. Is it worth explaining that a little bit? Y yes. Uh, what, what exactly? What, so what exactly do you how would, think? How would, how, would, how would Plato differ from Hume, for example? Okay. So Plato would say for, uh, that we can use our intellectual power of reason to grasp the world as it is. Mm. And he proceeds to make claims about things that are not observed. Mm. For instance, for Plato, the ideas, the forms, yes. they're not observed. They're in an abstract they are, realm. Yes, they are abstract entities. Yep. And uh, also things like mathematics, mathematical truths, logical truths, aesthetic truths, they are actually truths about abstract entities. Yes. So he thinks that there is an abstract domain in reality which we can understand and learn about via reason. Yeah. Hume is incredibly skeptical of this notion of reason. He completely dismisses the idea that we can actually learn anything with a non-sensory mm. intellectual power. And mm. he just says all we have is the senses. Yes. The senses are our only means of knowing the world. And this implies a skepticism towards metaphysical claims. Yeah. And uh, Hume is very much someone who thought that traditional philosophers were locked into irreconcilable disagreements and that uh, basically for the most part they were talking nonsense. Hume is a proto-positivist in that he was saying that whenever, when most people talk and they use terms like substance, power, the self, most of it is nonsense. Mm. And he was saying if you really want to see if a particular concept has meaning, try to track the sense impression from which it arose. Yeah. If you cannot find the sense impression of it, it doesn't exist. Hmm. So let me just illustrate you a difference. Aristotle in his metaphysics constantly talks about the notion of power and the notion of potentiality. Hume would say things like, well, there is no sense impression of power. All you see is just some pixels. Yeah. And some you have some feelings, but there is no such thing as power if you really look into it. Hmm. This has to do with his semantic theory. Personally, I, I, I reject it, but it's really important to come to terms with it. Hmm. Kant is someone who is really much shaken by Hume. And Schopenhauer is thinking of himself as the foremost Kantian. Now, let's say a bit... Yeah. Is Kant reacting to Hume? Kant is reacting to Hume, yeah. but there is a worry that he is conceding way too much ground to him. Mm. So mm. in his effort to engage with Hume and talk to an audience that is Humean, mm -hmm. he, he tries to establish common ground and to a very large extent he shares with Hume skepticism towards tra traditional metaphysics. Yeah. He does think that we can talk about necessity, he does think, for instance, that it is necessary that if we talk about objects, these are going to be objects in space and time that enter into causal relations. But he thinks that this is actually what the mind sees the world like. Mm. He thinks basically <clears throat> that this is what our minds supplant or put into 
the raw data of sex, sense experience. Yes. It's like saying that, for instance, we have a sort of format, hmm. a sort of uh, so the software of the yeah. mind, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? And he differs from traditional philosophers because he says that the fact that we see all these necessities around doesn't mean that these necessities exist irrespectively of our perception of it or not. They are impositions of the mind. So Kant cannot really say how the world would be like if we didn't perceive it. Mm. Mm. This is how he would go about it. And the major distinction that he brings along that is very important to understand Schopenhauer is the Kantian distinction between the things in themselves, things as they really are, which we can never know, and things as they seem to us, yes. the appearances. What Kant says essentially is that we can have knowledge, we can escape Hume's skepticism, but the knowledge we can have is knowledge of how the mind views the world, not how the world is independently of minds perceiving it. Yes. It's always bound up in a a priori framing. Yes. Which is dictated by yes. the structure of the mind. It is a structure of the mind yeah. that is <clears throat> placed upon sense experience. Yeah. Sensory data. Mm. So the reason why we take this uh, seeming tangent is not actually a tangent. Is why? Because Schopenhauer is a very systematic thinker. He is credited as being the last great system builder. Mm. After him, most thinkers are uh, very skeptical of systems. And uh, he is someone who is thinking of himself as a very as the continue the person who continues Kantianism. Now, I know that you're aware of some other of his contemporaries that he hated. Do you want to share a story or two? Um, so Schopenhauer was a contemporary of Hegel, and he was they were they they worked at the, they lectured at the same universities together. Um, Hegel was obviously an arch rationalist create a massive rational system for how he believed the universe worked. Um, and Schopenhauer was the opposite of that. And he believed that essentially the, he didn't, he was an atheist for a start. And he believed that um, in place of God was what we would call a metaphysical will, which is the animating force. Um, the idea of the unconscious wasn't there, but it would be, a, if we were to talk about it, um, Realistically, it would be a, a subconscious entity which drives all beings in the universe. And um, this was influenced by various other philosophies, but it, it, it was distinctly the opposite of Hegel and to the, to the extent that um, Schopenhauer would often uh, schedule his lectures to be at the same time as Hegel. And Hegel would usually be, because he was obviously extremely popular, he would have his lecture halls full, whereas Schopenhauer would have two to three people in his lectures. He wasn't he wasn't particularly popular in his in his heyday. Let's put it that way. So it's important to stress some differences between Hegel and Kant, and Hegel and Schopenhauer, because this shows a key problem in how we understand Schopenhauer, and it represents a question within Schopenhauer's scholarship. Mm. Now, let me say one thing. Um, 
when someone is a scholar of someone else, like let's say a scholar of Marx or a Marxian scholar, it doesn't mean that this person is a Marxist. They could be, they don't have to. It means the person who studies that person, that thinker. Now, one of the major questions in how we understand Schopenhauer is whether he's actually inconsistent in wanting to be a Kantian, in claiming right. to be a Kantian. In which case, it, if, he, if he ultimately was inconsistent, he was sort of criticizing people like Hegel on bad faith. Because the criticism of Hegel, I mean, he has loads of criticism. He thinks yeah. he's a charlatan. Yes. And he says, if you want to destroy someone's mind, give them read, Hegel to read. He calls them pretentious. Yes. Mm. One thing to say, if you just read them, <laughs> Schopenhauer is an incredibly gifted writer. Yeah, very lucid. I think he's the best, uh, one of the best writers ever yes. in philosophy. Uh, he's much better than Nietzsche. He's much better than Hegel. Hegel is yeah. arguably the worst. Um, he's just incredible. Mm. And mm. he does have a point that you don't need to obscure things for obscuring for uh, an obscurance's sake if you want to say something say it yeah. just so he was critical of hegel's style but i think what he was you mostly critical of and i base this on the fact that he is a he's very critical of other figures after kant that they are trying to make metaphysical claims and uh, they haven't understood Kant. So that mm. was the, the charge, mm -hmm. that they claim to have understood Kant, they claim to somehow continue Kant's tradition, but they, are actually, but they haven't actually understood and absorbed the insights of Kant, yeah. which are the ones that we talked about regarding the limitations of reason into enabling us to understand the world as it really is. But the problem is that if Schopenhauer is ultimately saying that the world is, ultimately speaking, driven by an irrational will, mm. this is a metaphysical claim. Yes. So the question is, how can someone who rejects metaphysics in the sense of a study of what really exists, as opposed to how it is perceived, how can that person comes along and tells us the nature of reality is this, irrational, blind will that causes us, for the most part, to suffer. What do you think? Do you think that this is a... Can he get away with it? What, what do you think? I think he can. He's obviously a transcendental idealist. So he's not... You know, he's, t he's taken this Kantian system of... You know, Kantian posits what, what we can sense, what we can see is the, the, the phenomenal world. Um, but he says that, you know, behind this, the things in themselves are part of what's called the numinal world. Um, as Schopenhauer was coming coming up, coming coming towards his ideas, you were getting the release of both Hindu and Buddhist philosophies in the West, uh, which were introduced by explorers, Western explorers to to those areas, and they'd come home with these texts, and um, a few of them were being translated, and there was lots of parallels between both Kant's system and later Schopenhauer's system. Um, so particularly between the Hindu 
cosmology which posits that there is essentially Kant's phenomenal world would, would be what's called Maya, which is ultimately an illusion. And behind this there is uh, uh, Brahman, which is the all-encompassing will or cosmic oneness, which is how the Hindus see it, which animates all beings and through which uh, it, from Brahman comes Atman, which is the animating force which goes into all beings and what uh, Schopenhauer seems to posit as his, uh, his cosmic will, if you like. Okay, but that would imply that we can actually learn how things really are either independently of how we perceive them. Mm. Because Brahma, as you said, um, is not something that we can perceive. Yeah. It is something that is somehow me almost it's, metaphysical. It, it's unknowable. So if he actually makes a claim that reality is ultimately Brahman, um, then he does seem to make a metaphysical claim. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, let me just say a small tangent here. I think there, I constantly mix Brahma and Brahman mm -hmm. in the Hindu. One of them has to do with the unity of being. Yeah. And the, the other is a god of the Hindu trinity. Brahman is the ultimate oneness I yes believe. and brahma with an n with an n yeah and brahma yes is the god of creation yeah shiva the god of destruction mm -hmm. and um vishnu vishnu is the god of balance yes okay and every time things go badly in the world we have an avatar of vishnu coming and mm -hmm. restoring balance <laughs> okay so um essentially this is one of the main questions in Schopenhauer's scholarship, whether he actually is a Kantian or not, whether he's inconsistent about it. But I think that, uh, you know, ultimately speaking, whether he is or not, uh, doesn't matter so much. It, it matters for scholarship, mm. but ultimately speaking, he says a lot of things that are really important. So how yeah. we situate them in, a, you know, in our understanding of him, I think is secondary. He says a lot of brilliant stuff. Yeah, uh, they are hard to to listen to and hard to read, but I think that it is important to give him a hearing. Mm. Let's say. Mm. So he was born in 1788, died in 1860. He was a very bright uh, German uh, thinker. Mm -hmm. He was also someone who knew Goethe. Yes, and Goethe really liked him. He yeah. thought really highly of him. Yeah. And uh, he is someone who had a kind of rough life mm. in some cases, um, not mostly emotional turmoil. It wasn't so much that he suffered physically speaking. Mm. It was mostly emotional turmoil. And he hated women. He, he had a pretty bad relationship with his mother. Yeah. Who, by, by, by what I've read, was extremely distant. Um, didn't <clears throat> didn't nourish him emotionally in the way that perhaps most mothers should, um, and there's a lot of speculation which she also treated her husband the same way, i.e., Schopenhauer's father, who who incidentally committed suicide. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, but a lot of emotional turmoil too with family. Yes. Despite the fact that he was relatively well endowed and received quite a handsome inheritance from his father. Um, let me lighten it up a bit, which is very ironic because our topic is the suffering of the world. Hmm. 
he he really hated the neighbor of his. There was an old lady that he pushed down the stairs one time because she wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and he was sentenced to pay a, a fee every month. Yeah. Yeah. To help her so live and because of the damage he did to her. And when she died, he wrote that <laughs> he wrote something like, uh, the old lady is dead. What a relief. Or the, the burden has been left off my shoulders. Yeah. He's, um, he was quite a infamous misogynist. Yes. Um, not, was not a fan of women. Yeah. Was he pissed off? Was he pissed off because he was rejected by, some women I'm not sure I know he was he had love affairs yeah uh, never married I'm not I've never read anything about him being yes. rejected but you know, who hasn't well, who, who, who hasn't been rejected so yeah yeah but, but, but I mean he, he could make an effort to be a bit more positive you will definitely understand why when yeah. we start talking about him a bit yeah okay yeah. and let me just say one thing um he uh, has uh, several essays mm. written. Mm. I think a lot of them are published with a title Parerga and Parelipomena, which uh, is something that he constantly revised. So he was a system builder. Yes. And he thought that basically the essentials of his system were correct. But he revisited his major work, The World as Will and Representation. It spans, I think, more than a thousand pages. Mm. And uh, he constantly revisited it. And uh, it's a really depressing but brilliant read. Now, let me just say one thing. When I read it, I thought that it was incredibly depressing. But I had a, a very high respect of him. Because he, I got the feeling that he touches upon subjects that very few people touch about. T touch. In terms of what? In terms of the way he, the things he talks about. So, for instance, he talks about how life is full of suffering. Is he quite the radical? It is not so much that he's radical in that respect, but he, he is pointing attention to something that was, to a very large extent, neglected. Mm. Certainly neglected in uh, a lot of department and academic courses right, right now. And uh, you almost sense that, well, okay, even if I, I, I sense that even if I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, I respect him and I want to read him and I want to revisit him because he, he is one of those figures that I need to contend with, hmm. with whose writings I need to contend with. And um, he represents really strong challenges to, to everyone who thinks yeah. about life. Yeah. Essentially, he thinks life is a mistake. Yes. Yeah. So I think we should, we, we're not going to focus on the thousand page book right now. It's, uh, I don't think we have time to do that. No. To do this. We may do so in the future. We will definitely say things about it. But I think we should focus on an essay of his called On the Sufferings of the World. It's a very short essay. They're a brilliant essay and brilliantly written. Yeah. And uh, just tell us what you think about it. He says things like, you know, life is a mistake and uh, things like that. Now, let me just start with the first. Let me just say, we should focus a lot on, the, on this essay, but I think we should end with a question of, you know, what to do about life. Mm. 
and whether we should, uh, how do we deal with the adversities of it and talk about what people think. Let's end with that. Because yeah. I think it's, uh, I mean, I have had some issues in the past. I wasn't very happy all the time. Um, other people may be depressed. So I think it's important to address this issue. Yes. In a way that uh, gives it the gravity it deserves. Yeah. Because especially, I mean, it's always the case that uh, there have been people who have uh, uh, seen the bad in life. Mm. And they have uh, become depressed. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that in any way as an insult. I say, uh, speak of it as a condition which we should, uh, we should talk about. Now, okay, let us start with this. Um, the first sentence of his essay is the following. Unless suffering is the direct and immediate object of life, our existence must entirely fail of its purpose. Now, I think that's, a, that's one of those sentences that if you start a uh, text with, it immediately catches attention. Yeah. How, how do you understand this? Um, so he's saying that suffering is essentially ontological reality, that um, suffering underpins everything driving being. And he says that if... Um, he, 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 you know, he's essentially saying if suffering isn't the ultimate purpose of being, of existence, then existence has no aim. There's no, there's yes, no need for yes. being here. Yeah. So the way I see it, and the way I think of it is in, 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 in the following sense. I think he's presenting a dilemma. Mm. He says it is either the case that life's goal is suffering, or it is not the case that life's goal is suffering. Yeah. If the goal of life, the aim of life, is suffering, then life is a mistake. It's just horrible. Yeah. It's the worst thing you could have wished anybody. If it is not the aim of life, if suffering is not the aim of life, then still life is a mistake because it very rarely achieves its aim. Mm -hmm. And if its aim is pleasure, then it's not really a good aim. No. And we, we very rarely achieve it. And there isn't much sense in achieving it, as he says, because he says that if we really look into it, pain is way more painful than pleasure is pleasurable. Yeah. And he says this, the pleasure in this world, it has been said, outweighs the pain. Or at mm. any rate, there is an even balance between the two. If the reader wishes to see shortly whether this statement is true, let him compare the respective feelings of two animals, one of which is engaged in eating the other. Yes. It's worth remembering that he's reacting directly to Leibniz, who had said that we live in the best possible of all worlds. The best, the best, the best possible, possible world, world of all worlds. Uh, he's reacting directly against that and saying, no, look around you. There's all this inherent suffering in the world. The momentary pleasure you get incidentally cannot counteract that suffering. And so ultimately, we know that suffering is therefore the main driver and we need to some, somehow, if we, can't, if we can't commit suicide, 
if we can't escape from it, we need to somehow reconcile that. Yeah. So one of the things that he says against Leibniz is that Leibniz is living in his own head instead of the real world. Hmm. Why? Because Leibniz is saying basically that evil is the absence of the po- of good, is the absence of the positive. Yep. Whereas Schopenhauer says, if you just look upon life, you will see that the evil is what is positive. Evil is the positive. And uh, the positive is the absence of evil. Now, let us just say one thing, because this may have sounded in a way that suggests that Schopenhauer is a sadist. Very far from it. He is very compassionate. He is talking in uh, not in an ethical sense, but in the sense of what is the norm. Yes. Okay, so he says, when he says that it is evil that is the positive, he says that this is the prime experience. The prime experience is one of pain. And we have some really small moments or some really small oasis. Oasis. Mm. We have occasionally an oasis. Blips of... Yeah, within the desert of, of pain. But remember... Suffering ultimately comes from desire. Yes. So, desire for shelter, for food, for mere survival. And he makes the he makes the comparison between us and the animals. And and the quote you you read out just before the he in a way envies animals because their mode of being is so in the moment they don't have a capacity to reflect on it. They're yes. always they're always there in the moment and. Yeah. As opposed to us, we are always one orientated towards death, and at the same time, we're fearful of it. We will definitely touch upon this a bit later on mm. because it's a, a perennial theme of the tragedy of human life that we can, with our consciousness, we can we understand that life is not ideal mm. in mm. a way that animals cannot understand. Yeah. Now, um, let me just say one thing about the method. Um, although he was a system builder, it doesn't mean that he didn't look in front of his eyes. And in fact, he's, he just charges lots of metaphysicians with not looking in front of their eyes, just as that they have completely neglected it. Mm. And he says things like, you know, Leibniz is just doing mental gymnastics. Yes. He is a sophist when he's talking about evil as being the absence of good. If you really look into life, as opposed to these abstract theories that you may conjure in order to try to sugarcoat your experiences and prevent yourself from looking into your existential mirror, he will say that, no, it is pain and suffering that is the norm. And occasionally there may be moments where there is absence of that. But it is even more tragic that Pleasure is not that is not worth it so much. And yeah. that is why he gives us the example of the animals, because he says, imagine up the pain that an animal that is being eaten alive feels. And just the pleasure of the other animal that eats it. Hmm. You will see that the distribution of pain and pleasure in the planet is just is so bad yeah. that pain and suffering is the norm. And indeed, he says that even the ideal of pleasure can never be met. You always 
I find this overly pessimistic. I think this is far too, far too deterministic. But he says that apprehension of pleasure is always better than the pleasure in itself, whereas the apprehension of pain is usually um, not as bad as the pain itself in the in the in the moment. Um, yes, I I think also he 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 focuses way too much on psychological mm. pain as opposed to physical pain. Yeah. And uh, one of my key worries with it is that when he talks about suffering as being the norm, he's, he seems to me to include way too much. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.